Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Francis Foster. Francis is a comedian and a co-host of the Trigonometry Podcast, which you should all check out. Hey Francis, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so I've been watching your stuff. I've been watching the Trigonometry Podcast and you guys are talking about a lot of the same stuff I'm really concerned about. Um, but I wanted to speak to you about comedy because I mean, you're a comedian mm. and I'm seeing this stuff happen and I'm looking at what's going on in schools and you know, universities and they're teaching people to find offense in everything. So like as a comedian, I mean, comedy is offense. Like I'll take Hitchens and you know, like, hit, like I'm going to mangle a Hitchens quote. And he's like, you know, it's not comedy unless it's at someone's expense. <laughs> and I mean, comedy is basically finding offense and offending people or yeah. taking hot topics. So if you've got a culture that's trained to find offense in everything, how is comedy supposed to survive? Well, this is, it's a very, very good question. And I think this is a problem. It's that rapidly the Overton window of what you can and can't joke about on stage is narrowing. And it, it's, it, I've seen it. So I started in comedy in 2009. And what you could discuss in comedy then and what you can discuss now, there's, there really is no comparison. And people will say, oh, you can joke about anything and you can go on stage and you can joke about anything and, you know, and it should be fine. Well, yeah, I can go on stage and joke about anything as a professional comedian. And when the comedy clubs were open, it meant that if I went on stage and I joked about a particular subject, if the audience didn't go with it, if it split the crowd, if it meant the promoter got complaints, then I would be far less likely to be rebooked. That's how it is. And what you've seen is I think most people realize and are actually very sensible, very mature, and realize the purpose of comedy is to be, you know, to, to joke, to, is to deal with subjects that are, you know, contentious, that in particular that we may not feel comfortable talking about. I think if you look at the, the greatest comedians, the comedians who we all respect, admire, you know, look up to, whether it's, you know, Chappelle, you know, Rock, um, Patrice O'Neill, your Bill Burrs, your Richard Pryors, a large part of, the, of, of why we enjoy, or certainly why I enjoy their comedy so much, is going, I can't believe they've just said that. Oh, my Lord. I've, I, you know, I always wish I could say that, but I, I just I could never do that. I can't believe that they've done that. It's that thrill, that transgressive thrill of watching a comedian or a performer say the things that you think, but you can never even probably admit to yourself. And yeah. I think with, with what is happening in comedy of saying, you know, you, this is punching down. You can't make this joke. You can't make that joke. You can't say this. What you're doing is you're destroying an art form. You really are. And look, I was, you know, before the pandemic hit, I, you know, I, I was in the clubs in London and I was gigging six nights a week, playing to crowds of hundreds of people every night, right? And these, you know, these clubs are the, the most reputable clubs in the UK. And I remember, to, and I got on very well with, with the people running the club because not only did I used to do sets there, but I also used to host because it meant that I would be working every night of the week and it meant that I had a steady income coming in, right? So I used to host a lot. And I used to quite enjoy hosting clubs as well because it's good fun. And I remember talking to promoters and saying to them, what's it like now with, with, with complaints? And every single one of them told me that complaints were up year upon year. You know, and this isn't, you know, the chuckle hut in some, you know, part of the country playing to 12 people, you know. This is reputable mainstream comedy club playing to hundreds of people every night. Okay, like the offense thing. I mean, I... I remember Michael Richards. I don't know if you remember that, but um, you know the guy who played Kramer on Seinfeld. This was, I think, it was in the '90s or something. He went on stage and he just started yelling the N word mm. and he just started. Yeah. Okay. That's offensive. That's wrong. That's yeah. like that wasn't funny. Hmm. But Jimmy Carr making that joke about mosquito nets in South Africa, saying, "You know, you need to protect the mosquitoes from AIDS." Mm. Now that's offensive. It's yeah. whatever, but. It's bringing up a topic and it's being funny. It's not just standing up on stage and telling your audience to fuck off. I mean, no. so like, where, like, <clears throat> okay, I, I look at someone like Hannah Gadsby and I, I mean, all I know about her is that one little thing that went around a couple of years ago. 
I'm like, what, 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 what one little thing about? Uh, she talked about how there's no such thing as good men and whatever it was from. Uh, okay, uh, right, got okay. you, got you, got okay. you. Yeah. Now, is that what comedy is becoming? Because I mean, okay, again, comedy. Let's sorry, ramble here for a second, but mm. like court jesters, mm. you know, they were there to tell truth to power. They were going to make fun of the king. I mean, obviously, yeah. they their life was a little precarious every now and then, but isn't that what comedy is supposed to do? Is to highlight the absurd and the awful in society in such a way that, you know, like my go-to is always making a joke. Like, yeah. it's all, you know, 9-11, I mean, it's, people are going to think I'm horrific, but literally 10 minutes after watching the planes crash. Yeah. And I mean, I was totally shocked and I was outside with some friends at work having a smoke. And I said, well, I guess American Airlines is going to hire some flight attendants. Now, <laughs> <laughs> now that's awful. And it's, yeah. but that's how I deal with things. And so like, yeah. are we, cutting off an outlet for people i i think the so when we talk about the purpose of comedy whilst i agree with you that to me that is the most that is the elevated form of comedy that is comedy at its best talking truth to power etc etc you know hicks you know Chappelle, rock all these people you know the people who we venerate who i particularly idolize who made me want to become a comedian right mm-hmm the, reali- the, re- the reality is the purpose of comedy is to make people laugh. Now, how you do that and, and, and the way you do that and what you joke about, that's up to you. But that is the purpose of comedy broadly. So, for instance, uh, there's a lot of people who don't particularly like Hannah Gadsby. I'm of the opinion with Hannah. I haven't really seen her work. It's not for me. I kind of already know that. But you know what? She's got an audience. That's brilliant. That's great that she goes around the world, that she can come to the UK, sell out the Royal Albert Hall, five and a half thousand people want to come and see her show. That's brilliant. If you want to do that, good good for you, right? Where I have a problem with it is when people come along and try and stop others from joking about, from, to, from doing their comedy. That's where the problem comes in because it is illiberal and what it is as well is having a particular worldview that you then bully others into having and shame others into having. Because you say it is wrong to make fun of or to talk about X, Y, Z topics. Therefore, I believe it. Therefore, you should too. And if you don't agree with me and if you don't go along with the way that I think, I will destroy you. So I'll give you an example of it. So we do, you know, at Trigonometry, we're We've done very well. You know, it's, it's been a real pressure and it's amazing to connect with people like you in Montreal, people all around the world. I've loved it. Um, we got signed to a, a big management company, which, you know, we, we're very happy about and all the rest of it. And immediately there was a small group of comedians who, in pu- they're not very bright, bless them, uh, in public were talking on Facebook, on a Facebook thread about getting us cancelled from our management company. They were openly talking about it. I mean, the week before they were talking about how cancel culture doesn't exist. So you can see, you know, they're not, you know, <laughs> they're not, they're not the sharpest knives in the kitchen, as it were. Yeah. Okay. One thing about the Hannah Gadsby, like, okay, I, she has a career. I'm not. I, I didn't mean to say that to stop her from being a comedian or anything. Like, more power to you. You do whatever you want. Make your money. Yeah. yeah. You know, no problem. And if someone likes it, you know, people like Britney Spears. I can't stand her. Yeah. I'm not going to stop. Yeah. You know, like, you do whatever you want. Right. Like it's. But the, like the comedy thing, like the, you know, only can say what I want to say. You can only do what I want to do. But like you mentioned, you know, they're not the brightest sheds, uh, tools of the shed or, you know, sharpest tools in the shed. But like the best comedians I've always found were the ones that were the most intelligent. Like George Collin was incredibly intelligent in the way he could yeah. play with words. So if you're getting people kind of dumbed down and, not willing to talk about anything like won't that also ruin the art form or like completely change it it's not going to be you know is it you're just going to stand up on stage and tell a narrative that might make people cry instead of laugh like i i don't understand that like i don't know i don't get where that impair like that impetus is coming from i mean look the thing that is the way that comedy has gone in that sense is because partly is to do with the fact that in the uk Comedy is not is not respected as an art form, right? Mm-hmm. So when you want to get noticed as a comedian, you go and what you do is this bastard mixture of comedy and theatre, 
where you go to the Edinburgh Festival. That's how you get noticed as a UK comedian. That's where Hannah went to get noticed. And you do this mixture of, you know, comedy and, and tragedy. And you talk about how sad your life is. Everybody cries at the 40 minute mark. And then it then gets, you know, reviewed by people like The Guardian and, you know, all the middle class reviewers. They then say, give it their seal of, of approval and then it gets picked up. And that's how that works, right? So that's where sort of, and that's where Hannah made her name really, was at the Edinburgh Festival, right? And that's a particular style of comedy. And it's not my thing, but, you know, people tend to like it and whatever else. But going back to what we were talking about, the problem is, is when you say to people that some things are not acceptable to be discussed, some things you simply can't joke about. And what I have noticed personally, and this is anecdotal, but I think a lot of comedians will, 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 will share this, is that there is a growing sensitivity in audiences. The more white an audience is, the more liberal an audience is, white and liberal particularly, white and working class can give a fuck. But white and liberal, the more sensitive they are, the more that they will feel uncomfortable, the more uh, about certain jokes being made, and the more restrictive and the narrower the Overton window is for, you, for these subjects to be discussed is. And what I've noticed over the years is that is getting narrower and narrower and narrower. So jokes that you used to be able to make one, two, three years ago, now you can't make. And it's not even that you have audience members being uncomfortable about you making certain jokes. It's like I said before, is that people will seek to ruin and to destroy your career. So another example, there are, uh, there's comedians who've got quite a big podcast and they made a joke about um, disabled people, which actually wasn't offensive. Uh, it was talking about, you know, uh, you know, essentially how disabled like a person would be before you, you, you wouldn't consider them to be, you know, to, to date them. That was a joke. Yeah. Now, for context, my mother's disabled. My mother has chronic osteoarthritis. My father's a full-time carer, right? Yeah. And I listened to that joke. I found nothing offensive in it in the slightest. But then what happened is a mob came down on those comedians, demanding that they retract the joke, demanding that they apologized. A charity got involved. Their agent was contacted. And... Lo and behold, they had to come out and apologize because if they didn't, their career would be ruined as a result. We had something similar in Quebec uh, a few years mm. back. I think it was, the comedian's name was Mike Ward. He made yeah, a joke about, about yeah. a disabled kid and got fined $50,000. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's ridiculous. But getting back to the audience thing there, where they're looking to be offended. Now, um, like I, I look at that as... I don't know if it's so much that they're or that they're uncomfortable with the joke. It's I think what it is that this is just you know my dime store psychology here. It's mm. that they've been taught that this stuff is offensive. Mm. They go to the you know, they go to a club. Someone says something. They laugh at or internally they laugh at it, but they're uncomfortable at themselves because they find them they find it funny. So it's like they're rooting out the sin in themselves, and it's mm. I, I think it's. I don't know. Like I said, it's dime store psychology here, but they're, they found it funny, but to laugh at it would do their date or their friends or whatever will find them awful. So they can't laugh at it. So they get all uncomfortable and then they lash out at the comedian because you made me feel this way. Like you didn't make mm -hmm. me laugh. You made me feel uncomfortable. Like again, I I'm going back to schools and stuff. And I, and I just wondered like when you're teaching this and you're, mm. I know it's worse in the U S than it is in, um, in the UK, but you know, everything's racist you know, uh, yeah. you know going for a hike is racist uh, you can't use <laughs> a term you can't use the term master bedroom because you know that denotes slavery like yeah it's it's, it's all awful yeah like, I, I don't know if it's that or if it's like, like i'm still like i just okay i got into all of this because i came back from overseas like i'd worked for 14 uh, close to 13 years overseas and i come back and you know i'd criticize islam and someone called me a white supremacist i'm like <laughs> where, where the hell's that coming from? Like, a, I'm brown, and B, uh, you know, like I come from a Muslim background. You know, I just come back from Afghanistan. I think I can say a little few things about Islam, but hmm. and I, I just wanted to find out where that thing came from, and I just went down this huge rabbit hole of wokeness. And it's, but like, 
I find it like that. Like they're, they're taught that these things aren't funny or you can't say these things or you can't do that. So when, you know, they go to see you and you make a joke that makes them feel uncomfortable. Instead of looking back at why they're uncomfortable, they're like lashing directly out at you. Like I, that's the kind of sense I get from the audience perspective. I think it's different to different people. What I would say is we, let's be honest, we all mm -hmm. have subjects or topics that for whatever reason, mm -hmm. we don't find funny because it affects us directly, yeah. whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know what it may be to some it's sexual assault, rape, pedophilia, whatever it may be because of our lived experience as we, you know, as mm -hmm. is the common term that we now use. The problem is not that. The problem is, is that we believe that we are so important. We're so narcissistic as a generation that just because we find it offensive, that we mm. think that it that it that it's so offensive, therefore it can't be discussed. Nobody else can listen to it. Nobody else can enjoy this joke because I find it offensive. And to me, that's a problem. It's a problem of narcissism. It's thinking that our worldview, our opinions are so important that the, that the one person, the individual, can dictate to the majority what we can and cannot enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I, I take that as um, like Mill's idea of, you know, if all of humanity minus one was of one opinion, you have to give that one the voice, hmm. right? And I mean, and Mill goes on to talk about you can't have the tyranny of the minority and all that kind of stuff as well, but it's gotten to that. Like, okay, so I'm the, it's again, I think it's a miseducation where they're taking that. It's like, okay, well, my voice can't be silenced. So I must be heard. Hmm. You know, again, it was, you know, the, the, the nineties and with the fundamentalist Christians, it's like change the channel. Like if I don't find you funny, I'm not going to buy a ticket to your comedy show yeah. and I'm not going to go. Like, I mean, in some sense, some guy who doesn't find you funny and is going to pay money to go to your show, he's putting money in your pocket, but then he's going to, he's going there to specifically look for offense. And that's like, why are you putting your, you know, like, like I said, I don't like Britney Spears. I'm not going to pay money to go see her sing. Okay. She doesn't sing anymore, but like name yeah. any artist, you know, like an artist I don't like, I'm not going to spend money to a concert to go see that artist or go see a comedian that I don't like. I mean, there's a masochism there as well. Like you're going to see this to watch it to you know to be pissed off to find mm. offense like to make yourself all worked up like it's a i don't know i i just find you know there is a narcissism and all that but it's just like, why do you want to put yourself through that like i don't understand why people would do that like i i think that the reason that people do that is because it makes you feel powerful mm. it makes you feel strong the fact that you can stand up and say, I do not like this, I want this shut down, I want this cancelled, makes people feel powerful. It gives them a power in a life where, where, let's be honest, the majority of us feel pow powerless. You know, we're all in this system, you know, things, <laughs> even more so now with COVID, our, our movement is being restricted. We can't go abroad, we can't go on holiday. You know, we can't enter a place without wearing a mask. It's a very difficult time, particularly now. But if you say that some, some, what somebody has done is unacceptable and you stop them from doing it, wow, what a rush. What a thrill. You're able to do that? I mean, how many people can say that they've done that? And in people's minds, you can frame that as, you know, that you're somehow this great fighter of freedom, standing yeah. up for the oppressed. I'm standing up for the guy who can't stand up for themselves. Yeah, it was... Okay, when you mentioned that, it brought to mind there was, I don't know if you saw it, it was at uh, Macy's. They yeah. had a, a a set of plates. They're really a stupid joke, but it, in the on the outside, it said uh, mom jeans. In the middle, it's it had a ring that said regular jeans. And then the third concentric circle at the very center said skinny jeans. Hmm. So some blue check mark on Twitter got upset and said, this is fat shaming and fat phobic. Hmm. Yeah. And got it pulled from Macy's. Hmm. Now she probably felt great about herself, but yeah. Okay. If you hadn't brought those plates to people's attentions, I don't think a lot of people would have bought them at Macy's because they were probably expensive at Macy's. And they're like I said, they didn't look good and it wasn't that funny. Hmm. And just out of the market, Macy's would have taken that off the shelves. Yeah. 
but, but after she did that, there were places that were buying the overstock from Macy's so they could sell them online. And they were making money off of it because she made such a huge deal out of it. It's just like, in some ways, it, I mean, okay, canceling people, getting them fired, you're not being able to get a gig. That's, you know, that's horrible. But in some other ways, it's, you know, I think people call it the Streisand effect or whatever. You're, yeah. you're going to get more of it, more people to see it. Hmm. You know, so like I, I, I think it's counterproductive and everything. Um, I just want to tilt for a second here. Like, okay, I'm a free speech advocate. That's yeah. you know, I, I, yeah. I, be- I believe that unless I'm calling for violence or you know death or something like that or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever you say should go. Mm-hmm. You don't have to listen to me. You don't have to agree with me. Come up with an argument. It's all good. Mm-hmm. But the country of Milton and Mill to like to st- stifle speech and to you know to hold back what can be said um i mean the the, the comedic tradition in the uk like if you you know you read some of the shakespeare stuff it's it, it is funny and it's mm. you know and the guy was offensive like you know he had yeah. he had like rape rape jokes in there he had yeah. all kinds of stuff i mean like, like do you see a tradition going like do you see a do you see like like I know, obviously things change, norms change, but it's 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 like to me that was almost core to the you know to the UK after the 1700s was like the free speech mm. and 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 you know making fun of everything. Like I, I don't know. Like do you like look? There've there've always been laws, you know, to restrict. Mm. You know, there've always been people who've been wanting to restrict speech for whatever reason, right? Mm. If you like, I mean, just take America briefly. So let's go back to Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce mm. was prosecuted time and time again under obscenity laws. Yeah. Look at Hicks. Hicks's last ever performance, I think it was on Letterman, got mm. pulled because it was deemed to be an quote unquote offensive. He was attacked time and time again from, from the Christian right. I think it was in, in the 1960s. I can't remember the name of the law. It escapes me now in the UK where certain books, plays, etc., were banned under obscenity laws. So there's always been this fight. There's always been this, this constant pushback of people wanting to censor, to stop certain things from being said, from being used. You know, we were, I was watching, um, I don't know if you've seen it, the film Straight Outta Compton about the band NWA, mm-hmm. and they were being shut down, you know, because they were saying, you know, for, the, for their song, Fuck the Police. So this has always been happening. But what happens is it manifests itself in a different form. In the 90s, for people like Bill Hicks, it was a Christian right. In the 50s, you know, it was the government. Now what you've got is this part of the left who are very, 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 you know, aggressive, censorious, want to bully, want to shame, want to destroy. But it's just a different manifestation of the same type of people. That's all it is. And it's yeah. our job as, you know, it's your job and it's my job and it's everybody's job who disagrees with this to stand up and say that they disagree with it and accept that you are going to get flack your way and you're going to get criticized and people, you know, like people have called me a racist mm-hmm. and, you know, all, the, all these things. And you, you've got to accept that. But as well, what we shouldn't be, what we shouldn't deny is the fact that the rewards have never been greater either. Because when people feel that their freedom of speech is being limited, that they are being bullied, that they are being pushed around, that if you actually stand up and say, look, I disagree with what you are saying. I disagree with this for A, B, C, D, E, F reasons. It's going to be far easier for you to find an audience. It's going to be far easier for you to attract people because the mainstream culture of comedians, political commentators, writers are not talking about these things because they're scared. So in a way, it is the worst of times. I agree with you. In other ways, it is the best of times. Plus, at the moment, you know, YouTube are ever more, you know, having their hands around the throats of of, of free speech and dictating what we can and can't talk about. But you can still find an audience for yourself online you can still connect to that group of people. So best of times, worst of times, as far as I'm concerned. 
Okay, now, I'm going to name one person, and it's like, you know, I already talked about Hannah Gazoo, but Sarah Silverman got in trouble in the 90s on Bill Maher's yeah. first show, yeah. uh, Politically Incorrect, because she made a joke about Chinese people, and she used the word chink. Right, yeah. And and recently she came out again, you know, saying, well, this is ridiculous. It's going to ruin comedy. But, and, and I'm not trying to pick on her because I find her quite funny. Like I found, I she find is. her stand up. Yeah. But there was, a that, joke writer. there was that period for a few years where you had comedians who were saying, well, and like big name comedians who had gotten big off being offensive, right? You know, mm. like, and, or their comedy was offensive, whatever, like, but they were they were saying, oh, you can't say this. How can you say that? Oh, you have to watch it. It's one thing to see it from the audience, but when you have actual comedians who made their, you know, made their bread and butter off of being offensive. Hmm. And I'm not saying Sarah Silverman was specifically going out to be offensive, but some of her jokes you could say yeah. were offensive. And like I said, I found her very funny. But where do you, like, when you see that, is it, do you just think, okay, these people are cowards or, you know, like, like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like when it's coming from comedians who made, you know, made their bread and butter off of this stuff. Mm. And then they now are opposed to it and they're trying to stop young comedians from coming up. Well, in Sarah's defense, I think she's railed back on those views a little bit. Yeah. I think, and full credit to her for that. And Bill Maher has always been very outspoken mm. about this type of thing. I, I actually quite like Bill Maher. I find him very mm. nuanced. Don't always agree with everything he yeah. says, but there, there's, there's, there's a thought and a logic mm. behind it. I think at the very start of this, it was far easier to get sucked in because we hadn't reached the point we've reached now. People hadn't realized where this was all going. So I'll use an example. We started the show in 2018. Right, April 2018. In the first few months, our biggest guest and a, fr a, fr a friend of the show and a friend of mine is a guy called Brendan O'Neill. I don't know if you've heard of Brendan. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, okay. So for those of you who listen to the podcast who don't know him, uh, Brendan is a, is a journalist, he's a political commentator, and he's a free speech absolutist. And we were talking with him in April, in let's say June or July 2018. And he went there is a problem with freedom of speech in this country. And Constantine and I, my co-host, looked at each other and went, what? Right, like, give me an example. And he used the example of this comedian uh, not being able to do Holocaust-denying material, comedy jokes, right, mm -hmm. on his song. And I remember making the joke, and we all laughed. I'm like, I'm going to be honest with you, Brendan. I'm struggling to give a fuck about her, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, wh yeah. why do I care? That you know, some you know, some crank somewhere it doesn't it isn't able to you know to do these jokes. But actually, when I look back at it now, that was a position of ignorance. Because the reality is, if you don't stand up for those people who say ridiculous and offensive things and you support them getting cancelled, well, you're supporting the narrowing of the Overton window. And guess what? It's a process. And once it starts with someone like her. It's going to carry on until you find yourself getting pushed out as well. Yeah. It's very, very, very difficult to defend people saying obnoxious, awful, racist, blah, blah, blah things. But the reality is you shouldn't defend their opinions, but you must always defend their right to say it. They have the right to say it. Now, they, they should be criticized and you, they can be mocked and whatever else, but you cannot and should not ever support the right to have them deplatformed, cancelled, removed. Because it's a process. It will start with her, and it will carry on. And it, the, word, the, the, the real clue is in the name, progressive. What does that mean? It's progress. It's moving forward. Progress is removing her. Then they're going to come after somebody who's on the heart, you know, who's, on, you know, who's, on, who's right wing who says, you know, who's, who's very hard line on immigration. Oh, well, you know, they're racist and blah, blah. Let's get rid of them. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Until, you know, yeah. we are where we are. Okay, a couple of things on that. Like, you know, I will defend anyone's right to speak. Okay, like, yeah. like I said, I, I used to speak out about Islam. I still do mm. a little bit. I'm more speaking about this stuff. But someone like Linda Sarsour, I find Linda Sarsour 
I don't know if you know who she is. No, I don't know who she uh, is. She's in the U.S. She's a she works with organizations like Care. She was a sponsor for Bernie, but you know she's hard line Muslim, and you know she's like, oh, Sharia just means you get rid of your your um, your credit card debt. There's no interest. Like you know, just yeah, complete bullshit artist. I signed a petition because they were trying to stop her from coming to Canada to speak at university. And to know yeah. she has a right to speak. Yeah. Now, are people confusing you defending the right of someone to speak with you agreeing with their views? Because I mean, like I said, I despise Linda Sarsour. I think she's a horrible person. I don't agree with just about anything she says, but I want her to go out there and speak. I want people to see what she's saying because you know, whatever it's overused, but sunlight is the best disinfectant when you can hear her, lie about stuff hmm. then maybe less people will take her seriously like i that's that's always been my position on this kind of stuff like you know let the nick griffiths of the world speak <laughs> let people find out how horrible they are yeah and that's it you're done um but again do you do you get that pushback like oh how dare you support that person you must support their views like what's going on with dawkins right now i mean it's, it's absolutely ridiculous and you know you can support dawkins I agree with what he said, but I mean, you can, or I agree with his premise there, but if you can support Dawkins, you don't have to agree with him. But like, like right away, it's like, if you agree with, if you support that person, you agree with everything they've said and everything they've ever said. And that's like, again, it's ignorance and stupidity coming from people that don't really understand what they're doing. Yeah. Look, I, I get, you know, I get a lot of criticism from comedians on the left. Mm-hmm who say to me, I can't believe you've had X, Y, and Z on the podcast. Classic example, Nigel Farage. I don't know if you know who Nigel Farage is, but if you, for, our, for your listeners who may be based in Canada may not be aware of him, Nigel Farage was one of the politicians who was instrumental in the UK, in the, in the UK, in UK leaving the European Union. He was instrumental in the Brexit process. He was the first person, really, who took that mantle on made it happen and as it look he said some things that weren't you know very nice or what, whatever else and it could be construed as bigoted etc and we had him on and we talked about it and we talked about brexit and we talked about a variety of other things and i had people telling me like i can't believe that you had him on as if to say that because i have him on i now support him and i support and espouse his views it's utterly ridiculous the whole purpose of trigonometry is that we talk to people from across the political spectrum. You know, we've had Jordan Peterson on, right? And I actually agree with quite a lot of what Jordan says. But after Jordan Peterson, we then had the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. And then I got people on the right going to me, I can't believe that you support Extinction Rebellion. I was going to ask you about that because, you know, when you mentioned Nigel Farage, because I know you guys had them on. But like, I was going to ask you if you got pushback from the right on that, because, okay, I think extension rebellions, extinction rebellion is a bunch of loons, but yeah. bring them on, question them, ask them why they're doing it. And, you know, you might find some kernel of truth or something in there. That's interesting. It's like, okay, you know what? You make a good point here, but you're going way off tangent might be better this way. Like the whole process of, you know, the dialectic where you, discuss ideas back and forth to come at a truth. I mean, you know, like I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not extension, extinction rebellion, but you know, climate change is a problem. Yeah. Like, it's something that has to be dealt with. The solutions that come out might not be the greatest, but at least if we start from that premise, okay, you know what? You guys say this, I agree with you there. Let's start. I mean, I see uh, the more polarization I see, um, the, the, the best explanation I saw of this was, and now here's another person who's, you know, out of favor with a lot of people, James Lindsay. Mm. He was on Joe Rogan's show uh, long, like this was a couple of years ago. And I think he was on when he was on with Peter Bogosian. And he talked about a centrifuge in chemistry. So it takes it and it spins it and puts stuff up to the outside. And mm. that's what I see happening in society is they're spinning it and spinning it and spinning it. And you've got, you know, the right going to one side, the left going to one side, and the center is not holding. And it's, mm. So, like, do you see that kind of stuff? Like, is it just, oh, you've had them on, so you must agree with them, or we can never agree with anything that person says, so we don't even have to have a discourse, but, like, how are people expecting to solve problems? Like, again, like climate change, you know, it's... The, the problem is, is that is 
like you said, the center. The, the reality is, is the vast majority of us are in the center. We may be center left. We may be center right. Mm -hmm. We may be slap bang in the center. The problem with being in the center is it means you get flack from both sides. Like with me, I get criticized by the left. Really, you know, you know, and saying some pretty nasty things, but I also get criticized by people on the right. It is difficult to be in the center because immediately what you do when you're in the center is you look at both tribes and say to them, I do not want to be part of your tribe. And immediately when you say that to people, people get very upset because they interpret that as a rejection. And also when you're part, we as human beings, we crave, we, we have a deep craving to be part of a tribe that is hardwired into us. So to then look at a particular tribe and leave or get expelled from that tribe is incredibly painful, incredibly painful. So the most difficult thing to be is in the center. It's to look at the left and say, I like these ideas. Socialized medicine, great. Social, you know, uh, everybody should have an education. The state should pay for it, great. Are these other ideas? No, not for me, thank you very much, right? Mm. The right, yes, I like this aspect of it. I like that aspect of it. But this part, I can't get on board with. You're effectively making yourself an outsider. And once you do that, you're making your life more difficult. And also as well, you're going against your own biology, which is hardwired to, to make you want to be part of a tribe. That's why it's so difficult to be in the center because you are on your own and you're standing apart and that's tough. It's not easy. Yeah. And the center thing, like, okay, I, I've been saying this for a few years. I mean, I use the terms left, right, liberal, conservative, because we don't have anything else. We just don't have yeah. the language, but the terms mean nothing like left in the U S left in Canada and left in the UK are three different things. Yeah. I think the left in Canada is closer to the left in the UK than it is the U S because I mean, our conservative party would be, center left in the United States, you know, like the conservative oh, party. Of course, yeah. you know. And so like, when you say center, it's like, I was joking around with people. I'm like, you know what? I'm not liberal. I'm not conservative, whatever. I'm an enlightenmentarian. I like the values mm. of the enlightenment and that's what I want. So it's, I think that's a, it's more of a principle stance. Like you're not just going along with, mm. oh, I'm left. I have to vote for, you know, uh, Corbyn or Trudeau or Biden or whatever. Like, you know, yeah, I have to vote for these people because I'm left. It's, like being centrist or whatever, I think, like I said, it's more principle stance. Like the last election in Canada, we the choices we had were awful and we're more yeah. like the UK where you don't, you know, we're not like these states where we vote for the prime minister. We vote for the the member of parliament in our, mm. you know, riding yeah. and then the party with the most seats chooses the prime minister. Um, so, but and like none of the leaders were good in my riding, none of the candidates, you know, except for the liberal candidate, you didn't hear from any of the other ones. You didn't know what they were about. I'm like, I'm like, you know what? Not one of these people deserves my vote. My vote is important to me. It's a valuable thing. And I'm not just going to give it to someone because, oh, you know what? I'm left. I got to vote for the liberals. My dad always votes for the liberals. I'm going to vote for the liberals. Like it's, it, it's, I think it's become like that. Like it's there. Like a lot of the people on the extremes, and I don't even want to say like, let's say three quarters of the way to the, the far end of either spectrum they're doing it more out of loyalty to their party or their side than they are out of principle yeah they do it because i identify as being left therefore they're presented with a candidate who says i'm on the left therefore they they vote for them it's like you know all these people who were you know overjoyed that you know biden got elected and let's let's accept that trump is deeply divisive He's a very strong flavor. I'm not a Trump supporter. I think that, you know, in many ways, his attitude and his demeanor created a, a hell of a amount of damage in the United States and entrenched attitudes and relations and, you know, and, and all of this, right? But people were seeing the election of Biden and Kamala Harris as being this universal positive, you know, the adults are back in the room. And I'm like, have you actually read up about Biden and Harris if you believe that? And the reality is people don't because people 
and, and, I, and I understand why. Again, people just want to belong. They want to have a tribe. They want to have people who accept them. They want to be protected. They want to feel part of something. The moment you start questioning, the moment you start saying, well, I disagree with that, and I don't really, really like that, is the moment you begin to alienate from yourself, from the tribe. And the moment you start to alienate yourself, you get one, one step closer to being expelled. And when then you said, when you do get expelled, mm. it is incredibly painful. Like when you said the, the adults you know, are back in the room with the Biden thing, I just thought of one thing, which was Steven Pinker and his wife doing that little happy dance when they announced Biden winning. And I'm like, okay, you're supposed to be the serious academic or whatever. Okay, be happy. I don't care. You're a candidate one. But that, I'm like, that's what you've reduced yourself to? Like, you know, that, that's all I'm going to think of Stephen Pinker from now on is that stupid little happy dance he did, <laughs> which is a shame. Because, I mean, I like what Pinker has to say. Like, I've got his books. I, I think he's, you know, highly intelligent person. But, like, I, I don't know if it's a lack of religion. I don't know if it's a lack of something. But, like, I think Douglas Murray had said it. Like, you know, you don't need to identify with your political party or a candidate that much. Like, you know, whether Corbyn or um, Johnson got elected in the last UK election or like, you know, here, if it was Trudeau or at that time it was Sheer or whatever, your your life shouldn't, obviously things are going to change, but I mean, you know, you shouldn't be in bed crying for two weeks because your candidate lost. Like, it, yeah. it, like, like I don't know. I, I just see people latching onto anything to give their life some sort of meaning. It's like, they're looking for something to give them meaning and it's, Oh, well, I'll do politics or something. I, I don't know. It's, it's, like I said, it's really bizarre. Yeah. I mean, again, it's because we live in a society. If you look at our city, our cities, we increasingly live more and more solitary lives. We, our families are shrinking. There is no more religion anymore. Well, there, you know, for most people, they live in a secular society. They feel alone. They feel alone. They feel empty. They feel rootless. And what is a, a really good way to feel part of a community, to feel a bond? Partly it's politics, especially when it starts to get wrapped up with morality, where you go, well, I think this and I vote this because I'm a good person. And then once that starts to happen, you know, then what you have is, is, is real, real tribalism. And it starts getting dangerous because you start, once you, that starts to happen, then you start to lose and start to fail to see the humanity in other people, in the people who oppose you. <laughs> and that's worrying because once you lose the humanity in other people and you start dehumanizing them, then you can become capable of anything. Um, I want to go back to something you'd said, like people calling you right wing. Oh, you said that you're right wing. Um, mm. Now, again, like I said, I got into all this because I was became vocal about Islam. No, yeah. When I left to go overseas, there was no social media. Like it, yeah. it, you know, it was in 2002, so and that was ubiquitous, but it wasn't what it is now. And you know, so I wasn't a vocal person. Like you know, I was an IT geek. I set up communications. <laughs> like I was like, mm. that's all I did. Like I. I didn't speak out, but then I came back and I started hearing like all this bullshit about Islam. And then as soon as you, okay, apostates in Islam, obviously, you know, death threats, there's 13 countries that will kill you. You know, uh, you have, you know, like, I guess most famously or whatever in, in the Netherlands, uh, uh, Theo van Gogh got stabbed and there was a note yeah, left yeah, for yeah. and like, like things like that. Like, so as soon as I came out, it was, as soon as I came back and I started speaking more vocally and more publicly on social media and stuff, it was the right wing talking point. Oh, you're using a right wing talking point. You're going to yeah. push the right wing. And it's, it went, okay. It went from right wing to you're racist. Then you're fascist. Then you're, you know, you're a Nazi. Then you're literally Hitler. Like it, yeah. I saw that progression go along and it's, like, but aren't they seeing like the Islam talk, they seeded a lot to the right. There were people, and I'm not talking about Richard Spencer from the alt-right. Like there's a guy, um, hmm. Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch. Uh, and yeah. I think in Ireland, there was Anne-Marie Waters and you yeah. had Daniel Pipes. And these are not people I particularly like, but they made some points. 
And they actually spent the time to read the Quran, read the Hadith and look into what it was. Mm. So they would make a complaint and then they would start off with, okay, I'm like, yeah, what he's saying is true, but then they would just go way off the rails because everyone on the left seeded that ground. I see the same thing happening here with like wokeism or whatever you want to yeah. call it. Like, you know, the, the, the crazy social justice stuff um, where most of the people I learned this from, like people like Helen Pluckrose or, you know, Peter Bogosian or John, Hay, they're, they're left wing, you know, James Lindsay, even like, you know, I know James voted for Trump, but James is hmm. ideally an enlightenment liberal as far as I can see. Hmm. Um, but, you know, there's an article in the Washington Post. So, uh, sorry, the Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, attacks on wokeism is coming from the right or attack on the woke is, you know, a right wing thing. I mean, you're again seeding the ground. Like I'm, I could see a right wing person, let's say someone like Richard Spencer, the, the alt right guy. I could see him reading critical race theory and going to his followers who are obviously not going to read this stuff and mm. he can totally misrepresent and he doesn't have to do much. See, like they hate white people, they think you're evil. And I mean, a lot of critical race theory says that. Hmm. and like that's like with the islam thing and with this i said you're going to get an overcorrection you're going to get a huge overcorrection coming i hate the direction that you know the left is going into and i think that that's awful but i'm terrified of an overcorrection from the right like you know like far right nationalistic jingoistic stuff like i think the way I look at it is if we compare World War II to communism, like the Nazis, you know, the Blitzkrieg was really fast, took over, mm. did everything, killed whatever they killed in, you know, like whatever, 12, 15 million people mm. in that short amount of time. Communism was a long game, 100 million people over 70 years. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's the right, I think, would be a faster, more brutal attack right away as opposed to a long term. And I, like, I don't want either, but like, I, like, I'm, I'm always worried about that overcorrection from the right and like this continuously just dumping people on that. Oh, you're right wing, you're right wing, you're right wing when they're not. And you're going to turn them that way. I think also the problem is, is look, we use the term right wing and then we, uh, as, and then we, we don't actually mean right wing. When I hear the term right wing, what I mean is somebody who is probably, you know, a, you know, a free market, you know, a libertarian. That's what I actually think is right wing. Small, low government, small government, tiny government, no intervention. You know, yeah. let the markets decide. Now, I think that's the wrong way to go about things, but I think it's a valid viewpoint. We need to be clear what we mean when we use the term right wing, because, and it's not, it's not you, it's, it's all of us. Yeah. What, what does it actually mean? What does it mean? Do you do you, do you think does that just mean what that you're you know a Christian conservative? Does it mean that you're you know a right wing libertarian, or does it mean racist and white supremacist? Because actually those two things are completely different. So firstly, I I think what we need to do is reclaim the term right wing. It is a valid political position, just as being left wing is a valid political position. I don't, I'm not either of those two things, but I think those two things should exist. So let's, we need to make that clarification first of all. And then the problem that you're really dealing with, with what you're really talking about, I think, again, comes down to the shrinking of the Overton window, discussing and being able to discuss certain topics. So we talk about extremist Islam, for example. In my country, we had the grooming gang scandal. I don't know if, you, if you've heard of this. Yeah. 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 Right. So for your listeners who haven't heard of it, I don't know. It's very there was uh, groups of um, first, second generation, uh, mainly uh, Islamic, uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi. Uh, I think also Af maybe Afghan, Af Afghan, but the, that third one, I'm not too sure about men who groomed particularly white working class women and then had sex with them, raped them. And a lot of these girls were underage. And this was never spoken about because it was deemed to be, you know, racist, you know, unacceptable, blah, blah, blah. And so it was covered up and it was a scandal. And it's been happening for over 20 years. We had someone on our show to, to, to talk about it, uh, who was herself a victim of the grooming gangs. She said that around half a million girls, some boys, but mainly girls, had been victim of these gangs. 
since the 90s, half a million. Um, and it was covered up. Like now, just the problem, uh, sorry, the, I just sorry. wanted to say, like, uh, on that, I think it's been, like, because I looked into it and I've spoken to someone from the Gruen gangs. I mean, like, I have, you know, it's been going on since the 80s. And when you said generationally, it was a cottage industry for some families. Like, yeah. it was, you know, multi generation. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you on that. No, 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 it's fine. Abed. And, but what happened was because of the shrinking of the Overton window, it was said that we can't talk about this. The police didn't want to prosecute these people. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted to talk about it. It was forced underground. What happens when an issue gets forced underground is you have someone very, very intelligent on the far right who will look at it and think to themselves, ah, I can exploit this. So they will go to the people who are affected, who are afflicted by this, who have been ignored by society as a whole and said, they don't care about you. I do. I'll represent you. And that's what happens. And that's how these people get power. They get currency and they become relevant. And um, it does. it's not just agreement gangs. It can be whatever it may be. But that is how they become powerful because ordinary people feel that their plights and their, and, you know, their issues are being ignored. It's not going to go away. Okay. It's going to manifest and it's going to mutate into something far darker and uglier, which is what happened in that particular instance. Okay. okay. Like again, with the grooming cameras, it was horrible, but I mean, I'll give you another example of something like this. Mm -hmm. And this was, okay. I worked in Afghanistan for close to seven years and I was yeah. setting up communication systems for NATO. I was managing their IT. Mm -hmm. um, and you hear things when you're there. Yeah. So yeah. in 2007, uh, okay. It was a British general at the time. They, when I first got there, like I, when I first got there in 2004 um, and I worked off and on over, like I did seven years over 10 years, like over a 10 year period, I was there for seven years, like off and on. Um, the, the, the Taliban and Al Qaeda and the insurgency was located in the North and then the East, like mainly the Northeast. Hmm. By about 2007, um, they had quelled a lot of that and they were starting to move down South. Uh, so NATO made an agreement with farmers saying, burn your poppy fields it was too late in that season for them to grow anything else. We'll feed you. We'll take care of your families yeah. over the winter. And next year we'll give you seeds and you can plant other crops. Yeah. So these guys were growing poppies because, you know, they want to feed their family. Of and, you course. Know, you know, these are small little farmers and little villages. So they burnt their crops. The money never came. The food never came. Now this got people pissed off. The well, Taliban. Yeah. The Taliban and Al Qaeda and other insurgents, because a lot of the insurgents were old warlords and drug lords. It was not just one cohesive thing. Hmm. They would come up, say, "You got a little bit of a farm. Let let my people hide here or whatever. We'll feed you." Yeah, guy wants to feed his family, and then you had the stronghold of the Taliban and Al Qaeda take up in the south, like Camp Bastion when it was first built. It was a British camp. It was this tiny little thing. Then when Harry went there, I mean, it turned into like, I think something like 30,000 troops. And that was because everything blew up in the South and they had to have a bigger presence down there. Yeah. And it's the same thing here. Like I'm, I'm obviously like what I'm saying here is an you know, extreme, but it's the same thing I'm seeing here. It's like people being pushed. When I say right wing, I should have said far right. You know, you're being put, mm. but people are being pushed to that where they might've been, you know, like they might've been good with Obama but they saw their jobs go. They saw everything else go. Yeah. They, they were called white supremacists. They were told they had privilege, even though they didn't have work or anything like that. Trump comes along and says, I'll bring back jobs. I'll, you know, I'll bring back the coal mines, whatever you can say. That was all bull. Like I'm not a Trump supporter. I'm, you know, I'm not, yeah. I wouldn't have voted for him, but he gave them something. It was that exact same thing. And I mean, like, that's what I say. Like, you know, you're going to have that overcorrection. I mean, like Charlottesville should have been a wake up call. Like hmm. there, uh, you know, I, I blame those people for what they did, but if you try to understand why they did it, it wasn't just cause they were all racist assholes to begin with. They might've been pushed that way. Okay. The year or two years before Charlottesville, there was a school in, or there was a few schools in New York city that separated kids. And this is kids as young as the third grade. So you're hmm. eight, nine years old. They separated them by race. And these are all elite schools. <laughs> they separated kids by race 45 minutes a week and told all the non-white kids that they had been oppressed their whole lives and that the white people oppressed them. And then they celebrated things that came out of 
you know, their racial categories. They told the white kids, you're oppressors. You've done nothing but oppress. Your race has done this, 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 and this bad. Within about a couple of months, the white kids started spouting off white supremacist rhetoric. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying any of those people in Charlottesville went to these schools, or, but again, someone like a Richard Spencer could take that and rally up people. See, hmm. you lost your job. They're telling you you're privileged. You, you know, you're, uh, the coal mine closed down, whatever. They hate you. And, and that's where, like, you know, that's what I'm kind of, like I said, I, I really worry about that. And it's, you know, it is far right. It is whatever, just extreme on either end is nuts. But like that's what I'm afraid of. Like, you're pushing people from a sensible center position or center right position yeah. or whatever. And then you're pushing them to this thing because you're telling them you don't want, them. you're telling them we don't want white people, you know, um, you like coca-cola and their hr thing i don't know if you saw that it was a screenshot yeah, that yeah, came yeah. out you know yeah. be less white like what the hell is that supposed to mean <laughs> the, the moment when you start demonizing any group of people any group black white asian latino whatever it may be there is going to be a reaction to that it just is and it's also as well you know the majority of people will just shrug their shoulders and get on with it or moan about it or complain or get angry but then there's always a very, very small group of people who will take matters into their own hands and things will take a darker turn. And also you will get the more nefarious elements of our society looking at that and thinking how they can ex exploit it for their own ends. That is what always happens. You saw that with the grooming gangs in this country. You saw that, like, you know, I don't blame anyone who voted for Trump. I really, really don't. I don't blame anybody who felt disillusioned, let down, angry at the political system. They had every right to be. They were screwed over for generations. Thanks to globalization, their way of life disappeared. Their, their factories, their means of earning work. And the thing that people never acknowledge as well is that work brings dignity. It's not just a way for you to feed and clothe yourself. It also brings, you, it also brings dignity and a sense of identity. And what happens with those communities is they lost their sense of dignity. And then they had a guy come in going, I'm going to bring these jobs back. I'm going to make America great again. Of course they voted for him. And liberals have just as much, if not more, to blame for that situation than anyone else. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to get into the whole Trump thing, but that's one yeah. of the things that really bugs me about this right now is after his election, a lot of the people who said, you know what, the excesses of the far left led to Trump, spent the next four years complaining about the shiny orange menace instead of actually fixing their, you know, like the Jordan Peterson thing, clean your room, you yeah. know, like fix your own side. You admitted that that caused this, but then yeah. you spent four years just reeling about like, you know, Trump. And it's just, like I said, I don't want to belabor that too much. Um, look, I know you probably got stuff to do and I don't want to keep yeah. you too long, but if you got any last words about comedy or anything like that, um, <laughs> yeah, obviously it's been let a very people... funny podcast, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's been a <laughs> I mean, kind of serious talk about comedy. <laughs> who, who, were expecting, who were expecting jokes, uh, sadly <laughs> mistaken. Um, what would I say about comedy, about everything? I'd just say that um, I, th I think where we are now, I'll be honest with you, I think the world needs comedy more than ever, particularly where we are now. <laughs> I don't think this you know, COVID situation is... You know, I think those people who think that with, you know, the vaccines and, you know, it's one of the few things this government has managed to do well is, is the vaccine rollout. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be this attitude in the UK that we've kind of seen the end of COVID and we're on the way out. I, I don't think that in, in any shape or form. I think now we need comedy more than ever. I think comedy is a coping strategy. It's a way for us to deal and to talk about things that are, are difficult to talk about, difficult for us to face, whatever it may be. And, and I think it's a thing that, you know, it, it helps us to connect with other people. Because if you can laugh with someone, you, you can find a common ground. And that's why I think it's so important that we don't, you know, attack people for making jokes. We don't, you know, try and de-platform comedians. We don't, if, even if we find a joke offensive, we don't support others losing their ability to connect on social media, in clubs, or wherever it may be. Because once you do that, you're essentially stopping other... We, you're, what you're doing is you're preventing others from connecting with each other. 
And I, and I just think it's really important. I think in, in a world where we're more atomized than ever before, it's really, really important to be able to connect, to be able to listen. And even if you find something offensive, have the humility to be able to look inside yourself and go, why do I find that offensive? Why do I disagree with that? Because actually, maybe you've got a blind spot that needs to be challenged and, and you didn't like it that it was pointed out by somebody who wasn't, isn't like you or thinks differently to you. So I guess that's what my final thought would be. Oh, that's great. Again, that, oh, not thanks. ending it on a joke either, but there oh, we go. <laughs> Why not? Let's be consistent. <laughs> well, th thank you very much, Francis, for coming on. It was great talking to you. Yeah. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back.